So if you remember last time what we dealt with was uh, Matthew 22. If you want to open in your Bibles to Matthew 22, it's always good to get um, context of what's going on in the situation. We're going to read through it. We've already done some observations of Matthew 8, the section that deals with the outer darkness. What we want to avoid is we want to avoid making conclusions already as much as we possibly can. Uh, there's some tension that we want to have resolved, and sometimes when we do that, we're so we're so quick to do it instead of letting the scriptures marinate on our hearts. We try to teach us what's really going on here. So, Jeremy, can I give my thoughts a minute? <laughs> if you're going to phrase it that way, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. The outer. First of all, I thought the outer darkness was hell, and now I think I'm understanding it's not. It's that circle, and as they get better and worse and worse, we're out here, or some people are out here. And I thought, being selfish, that the wailing and gnashing of the teeth is because I didn't get, but now I'm thinking it's because I didn't give. I'm wailing and gnashing teeth because I could have done more for Christ. Possibly. Is that a thought? That is a thought. It's your thought. thought. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thankful you shared it. But the reason why I'm not just throwing out all these answers here is because I don't want to do the work for you. The way that a Bible study like this on on a controversial topic benefits you is by the fact that you've been in the scriptures and you've been rolling it over. And and here's what it tells me is, is that you've had to look at it over and over again. You've gone back to it and you've been asking the question, what does it mean? What does it say? And as we start to put the pieces together, now let me remind you before we jump into Matthew 22, what was it? What was Jesus's statements in Matthew 8 that he told the crowd of Jews that were following him? Do we remember that about the centurion? He had great faith. I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. I want you to grasp that. And here's the reason why. You guys have heard me harp on this back and forth. And and I don't know if we get it or we don't get it because I don't really have anybody that wants to talk to me about it ever. Uh, But the idea of your Christian life is not lived by doing better and trying harder. In fact, I think, me personally, I think we need to get rid of the whole um, concept of the Christian life. We need to get rid of it. You always go to the Christian bookstore, you see a Christian living section, or you get a a catalog in the mail from Christian books, it always has Christian living, Christian living. Let's get rid of the idea of Christian living, and let's start talking about Christ's life. That's what we need to be talking about. Not that we're trying to live as Christians, that we want Christ to live his life in us. Sometimes a Christian living is, well, I just need to adopt these new principles. We treat it like habits, right? If I just do it for 28 days, it'll work. I guarantee you this, if it's not resultant of a change of the Holy Spirit because of your conviction of the Word of God, nothing's going to change. You might act differently for a time being, but the change isn't going to take place because when the Holy Spirit does a work, it's a perfect work. And I think that's what we have to come back and recognize is that my growth with Christ is all about what Jesus is doing in me, not what I'm doing for Jesus. And so when we talk about the fact that the centurion didn't even need Jesus to come to his house, all he needed him to do was speak the word. You know what that tells me? It tells me the centurion understood Genesis 1-1 better than anybody else. He spoke the word and it happened. That's it. 
All you need to do, Jesus, is speak the word. My servant will be healed. Jesus marveled. Some, some translations say was astonished or was amazed. And he said, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. And he says, I tell you the truth. There are going to be people who come from the east and the west. And they're going to dine at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast into the outer darkness. In that place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we've got to ask ourselves a question. Well, if that's the case, being cast into the outer darkness where this anguish and this regret, this emotion takes place, what is the idea of being not in the outer darkness? You already know the key. The text told you. What is it? No. Great faith. Great faith. Am I willing to believe what God said? Let me give you a for instance, because this is this is the hallmark example that people want to use in Scripture when they think back. You use it in Romans 4, you use it in Hebrews 11. Abraham. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, he believes God. He's, he's following along. Chapter 15 comes along. It's, it says, you know, I don't have any kids yet. God, what are we going to do? You haven't opened the womb. It almost seems like he's accusing God. You know, you're the one who opens the womb. We got no kids. What's going on here? Kind of thing. You know, and, and God says, well, I'll tell you what. Go out and look at the stars. You see that? Yeah, I see that. So will your descendants be. And Abraham believed God. And it was accredited to him, counted to him as righteousness. At that moment, he believed beyond understanding. Okay? Laverne, how many more kids are you having? he believed he believed get this he believed beyond beyond understanding he looked at his situation he said this ain't happening with me and that's probably where God said exactly this is what I've wanted you to realize with you nothing's getting done right and that's why he says and whenever Sarah laughs at it everybody remember that Sarah laughs at the idea Will I receive joy when I'm this old in life? And I love God's question. Why did Sarah laugh? And then she's a big liar. I didn't laugh. Right? I tell you what, I'm going to remind you of that mistake because I'm going to have you name your kid Isaac. Now, I'm, I'm not a prophet, but be honest. Is that the reason why you guys named Isaac Isaac? Have something to do with that? Why? Because I was 40 years old and I thought I was getting a little too old. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, you know, I don't know. What? We like the name as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like Mike, yeah. yeah. Well, it was the same with my Isaac, too. He was yeah. born on April Fool's Day, too. He was born on April Fool's Day? He was. Yeah. 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 I do notice that Cheryl laughed louder than Laverne there. Yes. yes. But here's the idea. When it, when it seemed like there was no way, God makes a way. When it seems like that we're out of ability, God has perfect ability. And that's why he said... Is anything too hard for the Lord? For you to laugh at the fact that God is going to do this is to say you don't believe that he can do this and we limit his power in our minds. But that's not the truth of the situation. Notice, that's a product of unbelief. And so, with that being said, now comes, fast forward a little bit, the opportunity of Abraham. I want you to get up and take your son, your only son, whom you love. Just in case you're not sure who I'm talking about. (laughs) And I want you to sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering on the mount that I will show you. And Abraham never complains. And why is that? Hebrews chapter 11. He was convinced. Get this. He believed to the point of saying, well, the promise that God made 
hasn't come about yet in this child that he gave me. Because I'm supposed to have many descendants, not just one descendant. And so since through this child the blessing is to come, I know that I can slay my child if that's what he's asked. And God will go as far as to defeat death and raise him to make sure that there is progeny. Now, we don't think like that. But that's a product of great faith. How do you avoid the outer darkness? We already have the answer in the very first thing we've looked at. Great faith. Believing everything that God has ever told us when we look at the situations of our life. There's the key. Those who are not in outer darkness, whatever that may be, are those who had great faith. Now, the danger is is that when we make outer darkness salvation, and we've come to this conclusion, and and someone will say, we see, if you don't have great faith, you're not really saved. You'll end up in hell. You see what I'm saying? you got to have great faith. Lordship. It's lordship stuff. It's the idea of giving your all for him, being willing to commit yourself to not do those sins anymore, and it all becomes about your performance and not Jesus' work. And that's always a dangerous way to look at the gospel because that's not the gospel. The gospel is about what Christ did, not about what we do in response. That's not it. So we now fast forward to Matthew 22. Notice we've already got the key, great faith. Let's keep that in our mind. And remember, we're just observing. We're not trying to draw any conclusions. We're not trying to interpret anything. We just want to look. Jesus, uh, chapter 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. parables. Now we have to ask ourselves, what is a parable? If you have a good commentary or something you were looking at, a Bible dictionary, something of that nature, you would find out that the word parable is a compound Greek word. The first word is para, P-A-R-A, okay? And it means along with or alongside, and bole, B-O-L, and probably something that would look kind of like a long E, bole, maybe, possibly, but I don't think it's that. I, uh, I don't think, I think it's an eta in Greek. But bole, and bole means to come. For someone to come or for something to come. So the idea is a parable is something that comes alongside. So it's a story that Jesus is going to tell. And there are truths that he wants to communicate. But in order to give a greater understanding of what he's talking about, he's going to paint a picture for you. Okay? Now what everybody gets messed up on is they take it, everything in the story as literally happening. Could it literally happen? Yeah, he could be literally describing it, and just the the instance itself is fictitious. You see what I'm saying? All the players involved, all the places involved, all the people, whatever you want to say, the outcome, all of that could be absolutely true, but it's just he's he's giving you an example of what's going on here. It could also not be true. He could also be telling you about something that, that, that is just a story because he wants you to get the big idea, and so we have to use our powers of observation and pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text our understanding. So notice what he says, verse 2, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Verse 2 is full of all kinds of stuff. What do you observe first? The kingdom of heaven. And why is this important? Because this is his subject matter. This parable is about the kingdom of heaven. So the subject under consideration has to deal with something pertaining to his kingdom. We have to keep that in mind. So the the kingdom of heaven is the millennial? I believe yes. There's a lot of people that would disagree with that. But I believe when he talks about the kingdom of heaven would be compared 
to this situation. I think he's talking about situations involving the kingdom. So heaven and the kingdom of heaven, you would say, are separate. Heaven and the kingdom are separate. Okay. Think about this. When we, when we look for his appearing and we're raptured, we are caught up in the air to meet him, and we will be with him for seven years. We know that. And during that time is when the judgment seat of Christ takes place for believers. Now, we're already in heaven. We're already with him. We're promised in John 14. He's going to prepare a place. When he comes again, he'll receive us unto himself, and we will be with the Lord always. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Rewards or not, we're always with him. So let's not let's not automatically put like Eeyore theology on this whole idea. Well, I'm just kind of indicate. No, you're there, and it's good stuff. It's great. And it's all because of Jesus. So there should be nothing but total gratitude that is cultivated. What scripture was that you just used? John 14, 6. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I return again, I'll receive you unto myself, and you will be with me always. It's a promise. Okay. And I believe that's talking about the rapture when it, when it occurs. When he returns again, he will rapture us. Okay? So now when that happens, we know from Scripture that the tribulation lasts for seven years. We're told that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. We do not know the day or the hour of the rapture. We know it's imminent. At any moment it could happen. Maybe before I be in, finish saying this sentence. Maybe. But still. But you see what I'm saying? At any moment it could take place. And I believe this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 when he says of that day no one knows. The day or the hour is fixed according to the Father's understanding. And I think that's exactly what he talks about in, in Acts chapter 1, verse uh, verse uh, 7. No one knows the day and the hour that the kingdom is going to come. No one knows these things. The Father has set this according to his own perfect plan. So no one can calculate when the rapture is going to take place. All these date setter people, man, burn their books. They don't need to be read by anybody. This, this Harold Camping guy, do you remember that a few years ago? There were people that were taking out their retirement and life savings and giving them away to people because in two days they weren't going to need them anymore. And somebody finally took out a billboard the day after that happened in New York and said, well, that was awkward. You know? I mean, just craziness. But people get so wrapped up in that. Now, praise God for zeal for the Lord because we could definitely use a lot more of that. But it is too often a zeal without knowledge of the scriptures because we fail to discern and observe when the times are going to happen. No one knows when the rapture is going to happen. Our command isn't to know. Our command is to look for his coming, to be ready, to be prepared, and to anticipate it, to live our lives in light of his coming. That's our responsibility, making use of every moment that we have to the fullest for his glory. Now, when the rapture occurs... We know that's seven years. There'll be three and a half years of false peace that the man of sin will sign a contract in the Middle East and will calm all fighting and then he will be ascended to finally the, the ranks of world ruler and he will do so without any spurts of violence. He won't need uh, to have a military arm in order to make it happen. But we also know in the middle of that time there's what's called the desolation uh, uh, what is it? Abomination. Yeah, the abomination of desolation. Yeah. And that occurs in, in uh, what is it? Matthew 24, starting in verse 15, I think it is. You can read that and you compare it with what you find in Daniel. And Jesus actually refers us to Daniel to understand what's going on so that we won't be ignorant about the situation. And when that occurs, he will stand in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And you can look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10 to read up on that. But he will stand in the Holy of Holies in the temple. He will not die, which tells us that the temple will be rebuilt during that first three and a half years. That's how much peace there's going to be. Because what's sitting on the Temple Mount right now? 
The Dome of the Rock. The Muslims are going to move. Now, I don't know if you know how revolutionary of a sentence that is. But the Muslims are going to go, you know what? We ought to let the Jews build their place here. That's insane right now. Why? Because if anybody gets close to the Mount now and seems to be a threat, they'll kill you. They have no problem with it. That's how much they highly esteem the Dome of the Rock there. There have been all these people who said, well, we can see how the temple would work sitting here, coincide, you know, along, coexisting alongside uh, the Dome of the Rock. I think that's college theology trying to coexist with everything. I don't think it's biblical theology. I think what we're going to see is that it's going to be such a catastrophic situation, and I actually mean that in a good way. Like, we never would have thought it would have happened. Oh, my gosh, everybody's so surprised. So as we're seeing this go on from heaven, the Dome of the Rock is going to be removed. Now now notice this. That's just how far-reaching the deceit of the man of sin is going to be. He is going to be such a smooth talker. He's going to be such a political proponent that he is going to be able to convince the Muslims to move shop so that the Jews can set up. And he's actually going to get everybody to sign on the dotted line. That's how deceitful it's going to be. And so there's going to be a pseudo-peace for three and a half years. Then when he steps into the Holy of Holies or the rebuilt temple and he's not struck down, you're going to have three responses from the Jewish people. Either, oh my gosh, our Messiah that we were always looking for is finally here. How do you know that? Because he, he stepped into the Holy of Holies and God didn't strike him down and that's where the presence of God is. Finally, our Christ. Why is he called the Antichrist? By the way, he's never called that in Revelation, but think about how he got the name. That's the reason why. Because he is the false Christ and he is going to deceive many. He's going to then say, everybody worship me or die. And there are going to be people who run for the hills and make it. And there are going to be people who run for the hills and don't make it and are slaughtered. That's why it says, when you see this happen, don't bother to grab your coat. Run. He's telling the Jewish people, run for it. So, so we, we have this whole idea of how the end times are going to take place trickling down. Are you talking end times? You're talking end of the tribulation? I'm talking about the entire tribulation. And then at the end of the tribulation, when it seems like that all hope is lost, when all the nations of the world have been gathered together by the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, to come against Israel, and especially Jerusalem, and are pelting them in the in the valley of, of Megiddo, and, and it says that blood is going to be as deep as the horse's bridle at that time, and it's going to be about four and a half miles long. Now that's bloody. That's a bloody battle that's going to take place. When all hope is lost, Jesus Christ is going to rip through the sky, not the clouds, the sky. He will actually grab the sky that we see, and he will open it up. It will roll up like a scroll, we're told in some instances. And when people see him, they are going to lose their ever-loving minds. They're going to turn cannons, try new rockets, and try to shoot him. Dumbest thing probably ever happened in the face of the earth. And some people are actually going to cry out for rocks to fall on them to hide them from his presence. And what they find out, sadly, is that you may die, but you will never escape God. Even after death, he is still there and he will still see you and they will see him face to face. See, it's not just Christians who will see him face to face. They actually see, hide us from the face of him who is on the throne and the lamb who was slain. That's what they cry out. I mean, it's amazing. So now when that happens and he returns, guess who gets to return with him? Right. And when he destroys all opposition and they lock Satan away for a thousand years, what then happens? The kingdom. So when we talk about a prophetic time clock of what it looks like, we know from Scripture. We know from studying. That's why these covenant people don't, don't have a clue of what's going on. 
And they're all trying to live kingdom now. It's because they've married Israel and the church together, and they don't know who they are. Covenant theologians experience an identity crisis, and they can't just read Scripture for what it says. Well, we don't really know what Revelation means. Actually, almost the entire book has already happened in 70 AD. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Has anybody ever read that book? It tells us the outline. Things that have happened, things that are happening, and things to come. The book gives us an outline of what's going to happen. So it's foolishness to sit here and look at the whole situation and, and to say oh, it, it's it's negligible. You know, even Rick Warren, you know, we shouldn't bother studying prophecy. It's not important for right now. Mm-hmm. We're told to look for his coming. That's part of prophecy. We need to be aware. So anyway, when is the kingdom of heaven going to happen? At that time. It's not that the kingdom of God is in our hearts. It's not that Christ is ruling now. I heard a song the other day on 102.5 about Christ ruling now as king from his throne. I was like, this is such pitiful theology. I don't even know where somebody got that. He's not. He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession. He's our great high priest that's pleading his blood for our acceptance before the Father. He has not ascended the throne yet. It has not happened yet. So it's important for us to know where we are in history. So when is Armageddon? It's going to happen in the last three and a half years. In fact, the last three and a half years, that entire seven-year period is known as the tribulation. The last three and a half years is known as the great tribulation. And Jesus makes that distinction in Matthew 24. There will be such great tribulation as has never been, nor will ever be again. So the kingdom will be for a thousand years. Yeah, the kingdom will be for a thousand years after the tribulation when the king returns. What happens 999 years? Well, it's still going to be awesome. <laughs> we still got one more year of absolutely amazing awesome. That's when Satan's cast in the hell uh, fire, right? He'll be he'll be cast in when the king returns. The angels will grab him and, and, and lock him down. But something's going to happen at the end of the millennium. Yes, he'll be flat free again. He's elusive. And here's the reason why: is because there are human beings who are ushered into the kingdom in their in their physical form. And when that happens, they are going to experience a, I don't know if it's a greenhouse effect or whatever it is, whatever the Lord's able to do, in order to prolong life at that time. Because there's a ton of death that happens on the earth. Only these human beings who are ushered into this kingdom age are the only ones who are alive. So they're the only ones who are procreating at that time. And while they're procreating for a thousand years, they're going to refill the earth. Well, all those people have ever known is Jesus. The righteous rule that he has. Psalm 2, he will rule from a rod of iron. Justice will be swift and exact. He will take care of it. They don't have Satan tempting them anymore. You see what I'm saying? A lot of the a lot of the temptations of the world have been laid to rest. I seriously doubt we're going to have TVs in the millennium. You see what I'm saying? We won't, that's, need, them. We won't need them. That's just going to be a medium that's going to be completely gone. But yet there will be a falling away. There will be a falling away. Why? Because we still have a sin nature. Because those people will still have a sin nature that dwells in them. Yes. Right. The people who are ushered in as human beings, they are still infected with the sin virus, and they will perpetuate that into their offspring. So when Satan's let loose for a time, and he tempts them and leads them astray, and they all decide they, they want to get together, you can't help but to think of the 60s marches and things like that. And here they come marching over the great hill onto the great city because they're going to show God what it's really like, down with the man, whatever it is. I mean, I don't know. And at that moment, there's going to be fire that comes from the sky and consumes them immediately like Sodom and Gomorrah. Is there a title for that? Oops. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I always thought that's what Armageddon was. No, Armageddon is the battle that happens at the very end when it seems like all hope is lost. And then Jesus returns, rips through the sky. That's the 
the blood at the bridal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the valley, reason is, and it's it's Revelation that's sixteen, Ar- Battle of Armageddon. Yeah, I think it's fourteen and sixteen. But the reason is, is because at that moment, um, the Antichrist has been able to convince the whole world to turn against Israel. And, 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 and to mount up arms and to bring all their tanks and you have the million man army from the east the Euphrates is going to dry up you know and the million man army is going to cross over we know that's China who else has got a million man army they definitely don't have any girls in their army over there they keep killing them you know so they're going to bring that over and here's an interesting thing to think about unless China does something and the major player that they are in prophecy in that way unless they do something that tells me that the end of the world is, is soon because you cannot you cannot perpetuate your society if you keep killing all your female babies that are born. You speak of the end of the world. Yeah. And that date is I know you're not saying dates, but what are they called? That that's the end of the tribulation then? No, I'm saying that's when the seven years comes. Okay. So I'm saying I'm saying that they're not going to have a million men left for I don't know how much longer they can perpetuate themselves without a female. They're killing their own society by killing all their girls. Yeah. When they when they have a girl over there, they consider them inferior and so Every so often, every so often, they might keep one, but the majority of them are put to death. Well, they're just figuring this out because they have thirty-year-old men, and it's like what five to, you know, like eight to one or something. Yes. So now they have, now they're saying that you can have two kids now, because there's nobody to take care of the elderly, and there's nobody to marry all the boys. But they're, boys. Yes. they're still so, only keeping yeah, the boys. They're still so only as, keeping the boys. As smart as they are, they didn't add that. They overdid themselves. Right. Or as, or as Dave Field said today in the pulpit, they screwed themselves. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, boy, I bet some eyebrows hit the front brim of the right there. That was good. So anyway, so that's where we're at. This whole idea of where the kingdom takes place. And it's the righteous rule of Jesus Christ literally from earth. So notice what he's going to explain to us here is a picture of something that is connected to that kingdom moment. That's the idea. Go ahead, Colleen. Well, I just wondered about people... I've heard that people can get saved through in the tribulation. Yes, absolutely. I, I would hope they could as many study Bibles as we're going to leave behind. Good grief. <laughs> That's one thing. We're not we're not amiss on Christian literature at all. We got Christian websites coming out of our ears and all this stuff. So I mean Yeah, the hundred and forty four thousand, there are gonna be hundred and forty four thousand Jews that are sealed. Okay. And it seems that those excuse me, those one hundred and forty four thousand Jews are going to be evangelists, 12,000 from each tribe, are going to be evangelists that actually lead an untold number of Gentiles to faith in Christ. So they aren't Jehovah's Witnesses. No! 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 And here's the thing, and I've even talked with a Jehovah's Witness about that whole thing, and the conclusion I came when I walked away from the situation, because you're not going to convince them, they're pretty thoroughly brainwashed. But what I came came away from was, is, is you need to go back to third grade, somebody needs to teach you how to read. I mean, it's just very simply unfolded, yeah. So, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, the the kingdom of heaven, verse 2, may be compared to. Now, notice, that's important. Compared to. Not that it is. Jesus wants to give you the parable alongside it. It's a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Ah, the king is God, the son is Jesus, and the wedding feast is him. Don't interpret. Just observe. You've got a king above him, the king. I'm just going to write a big K. You have a wedding feast. I'm going to write a WF, and you've got a son. I'm going to write a big S just so I keep everybody in line about what's going on here, okay? Verse 3. And he sent out his slaves, he, king, his, 
king, put a K above it, his slaves. How do we know that? Because he's the one who's giving the wedding feast. He's the one in charge, okay? It says, to call those who, watch this, verb tense, had been invited. Right, already. They're already invited. That's what I'm going to put under there. Already invited. It's already happened. And notice, to the wedding feast, WF. And they were unwilling to come. Now stop. They've been invited. But the problem was their will. Notice it wasn't transportation. Notice it wasn't lack of a bridal gift. Notice it wasn't we couldn't find a babysitter. Okay? The problem was what? Unwilling. It's the heart. The will did not wish to comply. Now, why is this important? Because if they were unwilling, where does the personal responsibility lie? On them. So I'm writing above that personal responsibility. I have a question. Go for it. The king would be the sovereign over that area. Hmm? How can they be unwilling if he gives yeah. a command? There you go. How can they be unwilling to abide by his command? Different types of kings, right? It's an invitation. How many of you would agree that Barack Obama's presidency is different from Trump's presidency? Oh, yeah. What about Ronald Reagan's presidency? Yeah. What about Jimmy Carter's presidency? Okay. What's amazing is, let me give you a good example of this. The Methodist Church last year had a huge meeting. And the subject is gay marriage and gay clergy and gay membership and those types of things. And the conservatives won the vote. And I had a huge conversation with, with some Hispanic pastors yesterday about this whole situation because they're Methodist. And they, the, the, African, the African branch of the, of the uh, Mer, uh, Methodist church, the delegation said, why would we ever say it's acceptable for our people to be in this? This is sin. And the American church, oh, you're not very tolerant now. There you go with all that language that we were trying to get rid of. And, all. and, and the conservative branch won. And what's the conversation this year? The conservative branch, though they won, are looking for means and restitution to be released from the Methodist uh, obligations that they have with the denomination so they can start their own conservative branch even though they won before. Why is that? Because the rebellion against the authority of the hierarchy of the Methodist Church has been so fierce in America calling for this issue to be accepted that the conservatives have taken the high road and said, let's bow out. You know, part of that too was the previous meeting... The conservatives won the vote to divest from the RCRC, which is the Religions Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Okay. And they got trampled in that, too. Mm -hmm. So it's not the first time that they got ignored. Yes. So now they're like, okay, bye. I, I, I talked to these Hispanic pastors yesterday about them informing their conversation, their, their congregations, because the Anglo conversation uh, going on in the churches are being painted very different. The Hispanics are like, "This is insane! What in the world are these people thinking?" You know, and he asked me, you know, would he he asked me this question. He goes, "Do you feel that the English speaking congregations?" Uh, have have caused this issue to to go further. I said, yeah, white people messed it all up. <laughs> I said, I said, yeah, we we we've really made a mess of the whole thing. Of course, not conservative Bible believing Christians, but as far as Methodists that are being liberal and promoting this type of thing, absolutely, they've invited this stuff in, and that's why it's going in this direction. Well, one of the people on the board's an atheist. 
in the head of the I can't help what Methodist they do. Church. Yeah. But you want to talk about why somebody would deny a command from, from a ruler. I tell you what this does. It shows us that whoever the king is is a very gracious and long-suffering king. So, Roxanne. Just a comment that I had a conversation at the pre-clinic um, with a man who's uh, high up in the Methodist church. And he said what he sees happened is the majority of Methodists do not live in the United States. More Methodists live overseas, particularly in Africa, and they're conservative. Mm -hmm. So they're, America is trying to overrule what the majority of the Methodists... Yes, yes. And, you, and you watch, you watch, it will have undertones of racism all over it, and it'll start promoting this idea of first world, third world ideas. And well, they don't know because they're just not as educated as we are, and our society has progressed so much more... That doesn't come back to the main question. If you're in hermeneutics class, we've been talking about this. What is the authority? Mm -hmm. And they're denying the Bible. That's where it stands. Sort of like the centurion and the Jews, the Hispanics can see it. Yes. Whites can't. Yes. And they don't understand why anybody would want to participate in that type of behavior. You know, he would say that maybe 20% of the Hispanic churches in America would say that that would be an okay direction to go. But 80% are saying, this is crazy. No. And, and, and it's interesting because they're, they're kind of scratching their heads going, why do, why do people think that the Bible is, a confusing, is, is been confusing on this topic? You know, maybe we all need to start reading the Spanish translation. Maybe it's clear. I don't know. But, you know, it, it just seems insane. So why, why, would a, why would they deny a ruler's command like that, an invitation like that? Because we do it all the time. You know, that's really what it boils down to. But let's see how it, let's see how it unfolds. I think the term invitation indicates uh, freedom to choose. Yeah. Not yeah. A command. I, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, we don't have an RSVP number or anything, but yeah, yeah, I would completely agree. So look at verse 4. Again. Now, anytime you see the word again, very important. Probably worth a double underline on that one. Probably as good as but. Again. He sent out other slaves. Now notice, I'm going to go back up to verse 3, and I'm going to write number 1 slaves. And under here, I'm going to write number 2 slaves. Not because one's better than two or anything, but because you got two separate delegations of slaves that have been sent out. He sent out, he being the king, the big K above that, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited. Now notice, have been invited again i have this already context in the way that it falls on your paper here there's one right over the other so i'm going to draw arrows between the two because it's the same idea it's the exact same thing those who have been invited notice behold now anytime somebody says behold it's always helped me to think of what charlie brown looks like when lucy gets a hold of his shirt collar okay <laughs> Somehow Charlie Brown got three eyes all of a sudden and they're rolling around in circles, okay? Behold, right? Pay attention kind of idea is what it's getting at. So behold, that's probably a triple underliner for me. I, that's the king, have prepared my king dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock, and are all butchered, and everything is, present tense, Ready. <coughs> Notice that. Now let me ask you this. Has this wedding feast cost the king? Yeah. Yeah. It has. Yeah. It's all his. 
And he's all giving it forward, and he is inviting people to come and celebrate. What does a wedding feast look like? Right? It's not just everybody doing the chicken dance and stuff like that. What is it? It's a big party. It's cake. It's celebration. We know from the wedding feast at Cana in John chapter 2, Jesus is hanging out there with his disciples. They drink and drink and drink and drink and are actually really surprised at the quality of wine that's brought out because they're like, man, we've drunk so much, we don't even know what water tastes like anymore. <laughs> and you bring out this this primo good stuff, you know, uh, 1894, something like that, right? <laughs> and we're, this is amazing that you're doing this. Why you, and, and notice that Jesus is trying to make a, a point here about doing signs and professing his deity to people. It, it's amazing. But we know from that what the customary thing was. It was days that they celebrated. Celebrated for days. Maybe we're so stressed out because we lost this whole idea that, you know what, it's okay to celebrate for days. I think I've lost that. So anyway, notice. He says, come to the wedding feast. You know what that is right there where he I mean, says... That sounds like a command. Notice he that. He doesn't say, please come. Right. Okay. So they're defying their sovereign king. Yes. And from what I understand about sovereign kings, if you defy him, he can kill you. Yeah. Probably. Yep. I mean, invitations say come. It's not that it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be. But he's, yeah. see, he's saying here, come. Yep. To the wedding feast. Yep. And you know, what else, you know what else that is, though, if you think about it? Notice, verse 3, have been invited. Okay. There is invite number one. We saw the one in verse four. Tell those who have been invited, right? I'll go ahead and say that's invite number two because they're reiterating it. And notice here, come to the wedding feast. You know what that is? Invite number three. Three strikes you're out. I don't really think so that God would need to go out and say please and like bang people. No, but but notice that he does. I, I think yeah. it's odd though that he has to give three invitations for a party. Yeah. <laughs> I know. How depressed are these people? <laughs> but think free food. But this yeah. is important. And, and notice this: anytime that we interpret anything, one of the greatest foundational fallbacks that we have always is the character of God. If we are if we are familiar on his attributes. Sometimes we read passages and we want to think all about his wrath and justice and his righteousness, but we forget to think about his love, mercy, and grace. These things are not out of balance with him. That's what we have to remember. He is perfectly all at the same time. He is a long-suffering king. He's been long-suffering with the human race for thousands of years now. So, I mean, we have to remember, yeah, we would have. I would have had all those people beheaded. I would have taken, you know, action on them. I would have cast them, you know, into this other place. I told to ship them out and deport them to another country. We would have had all these things that we would have done. We have to look at whoever the king is, what he does. Okay, so notice, come to the wedding feast. Verse 5, but, double underline, they, and I'm going to put a little thing out to the side with an arrow, those invited. They, now here's what's insulting, paid no attention. You know what that tells me? It's insignificant. And went on their way. They didn't care. They didn't care. They paid no attention and went on their way. Schofield says made light of it. What's that? Schofield says made light of it. Made light of it. In fact, does anybody have a different translation? They've got it open to that. Would want to read than the NASB? It's what we're looking out of here. Um, Go ahead. 
Momentos, but they paid no attention and went their way. Okay. And, Do you have um, the New American Standard or something different? Um, yeah, New American Standard says one to his own farm and another to his business. Yeah. Does anybody have something different besides the NASB? I no? Sorry. I can get you whatever you want. Ah. Well, pull up the, the King Jimmy and see what it says. Yeah. That's light. Matthew, what? 22? Yeah, take a look at it. That's what you have, right? Uh, 22.5. Notice they pay no attention, went their way, went on about their business is the idea. Mm-hmm. Okay? But notice one to his farm. Uh-oh, Oliver. Uh-oh. Right? <laughs> Another to his business. Now, now think about that. Think of, here's the reason why. Uh, let's see. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. What does it tell you is the most important thing in their life? Their stuff. Their stuff. Stuff. Stuff is the American idol. They'd rather go work. Now, what'd you say, Laverne? Yes. What'd you say? Milking those cows. Milking those cows. Income. One of the greatest problems that we've ever made is thinking that somehow the harder we work will be will dictate our income. That's true. That's that that's that's the way the world thinks. What does the word tell you? Honor God first. And he will supply your income. Well, I don't know how I'm gonna make ends meet. Remember the lady who gave two pennies last that she yeah. had? She gave out of her poverty. You think she was taken care of or you think she went home and died? I think she's taken care of. You see what I'm saying? God's gonna make sure of it. Again, great faith, thinking beyond how we've been trained by this world system. To recognize the ability of God in every situation. Can he do it? That's the idea. So notice, one went to his farm, another to his business. Verse 6, and the rest seized his slaves. Now that's probably designation number 2, right? The other slaves who went and mistreated them. Anybody know what that's called? Torture. Torture. In fact, I'd be very interested to see what that original Greek word is there. So let me pull it up here. By the way, if you, I, I know I've told you guys this. If you don't have the literal word app, it's a great app. It really is. What is it called? Literal Deformation. word. It says what? Reproach, defamation. I don't know how to pronounce it. The Reproach them? Let's see here. Mistreated them. Yeah. To wax wanton, to run riot. Uh, to outrage, to insult, to treat insolently is the idea. Spitefully. Spitefully. This is much more than being made fun of at high school for what you're wearing. Yeah. You know, so notice this. They mistreated them, and if that wasn't enough, they killed them. Now, I think this is important because this is actions following thinking. Okay? No one who is convinced that what the king is telling them is the best thing for them to do is going to turn around and kill another person. Notice the problem is doctrine. The problem is doctrine in the mind. In fact, under killed them, I'm going to draw a little arrow and I'm going to put blood on their hands. Again, an act of personal responsibility. Does everybody see this? So when there's a judgment that comes their way, do they deserve it? Mm -hmm. You darn tootin' they deserve it. 
They should get every bit they have coming their way. They went as far, get this, think about how insane this is. They went as far as to kill people because they brought a party invitation. (laughs) Can you imagine? I'd be afraid to send out my wedding invitations after something. No joke. Now, Now it's going to be a little bit of time, but Lily, at some point you're going to get married. (laughs) <laughs> and you're and you're going to send out wedding you're going to send out wedding invitations and your husband's going to tell you what he likes about the invitation and you're going to dismiss him like he didn't even talk and you're going to get your wedding invitations you're going to send them out. <laughs> don't even play guys like we have some say so in it and you can imagine imagine you're going to start getting back we're going to be there we're going to be there we're going to be there and you get some people that just didn't you get my invitation yeah well, I, I was busy that day you know I think you need to die. You know? <laughs> think about that. Yeah, it's a bit aggressive. It is. Don't you see what I'm saying? We 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 had it we had it hand delivered to your doorstep. You know? Well, uh, yeah, that guy that you had hand delivered, we actually killed him. He's buried in the backyard. Okay. That's where. But but did you see this? Did everybody see the picture that Jesus is trying to paint? This is how insane the situation had gotten. Because they were so consumed with self and anything that intruded on their business, making money, what they wanted to do with their life, they would rather kill than heed. Now, I don't know about you. I'm going to go ahead and and, and just throw a little dart out there and think about it. But this isn't any different with the Old Testament prophets. Everybody know how Isaiah died? They they sawed him in half. They put him inside the casing of a log, and they didn't saw him like across the mid area. They sawed him from neck to groin, right down the middle, in half. Mm -hmm. However, you'd be hard to find a greater prophet in the Old Testament than him. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? And why did they? Because he was a bad person. Because he abused children. Because he refused to pay his rent. Because he sold soured milk to people. No. It's all because he was faithful at preaching God's message and he was telling people what you are doing is wrong. You need to repent. You are all idolaters. And so what did they say? I don't want to listen to him. Let's kill him. That's how you shut him up. Boy, that sounds funny. Everybody see that? Yeah. So notice, this is how insane people get when they're addressed with this idea. Now, because we're out of time, we're going to stop at the end of verse 6. <laughs> but I encourage you, we will pick up with verse 7 next week, but I encourage you, spend time in this text. Mark it up. Then go back and mark it up again. Get a fresh copy of it and mark it up again. And mark it up again. Why is that? The more that you can let the Scriptures ruminate in your being, the better off you will be because the Holy Spirit uses that raw material to teach our minds and our hearts about righteousness. Sound good? I just got to say quick. Go for it. Verse 8, he says to the servants to go again. We suppose them guys. Exactly. Exactly. You know what? It was just like. Um, they said different servants. It was just God. like. I, well, I can't remember if his. What was his name? Ananias, whenever he heard that Paul got saved. Go to, go to the street called Straight uh, Paul. We've heard of uh, God. We've heard about this guy. He killed a lot of your servants. I said go. I mean, think about that. Yeah. So let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time working through this text and pray, God, you add it to our understanding. Give us wisdom in it, Father. Help us to be thinking about it, meditating on it, Lord, really dwelling upon it throughout the week that we would be more understanding not just of the the depravity of the human condition, but also the great grace of which you show in offering salvation to the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.